This is the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 20th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. Ed Zollers talking to you this weekend again from Phoenix after having been on the road to Atlantic City, New Jersey this week. So be back and a little bit warmer here, uh, quite a bit warmer here. But we'll take a look at what's gone on in taxes this week. And this week, we're going to actually be looking at three different cases that came down this week. In the first case, we're going to look at a taxpayer who succeeded in persuading the court that there could be interest paid with their proceeds from their foreclosure, but unfortunately couldn't take it the next step and actually demonstrate to the court that mortgage interest had been paid with proceeds from their from the foreclosure sale that was involved. So good news, bad news there for the taxpayer, ultimately bad news. The second case, we'll take a look at the issue that I'm sure you've all heard about, talked about before, done this sort of thing. And the question is, when is clothing considered to be a deductible business expense versus when is it a personal expense? In this case, we have a nurse who prevailed in a case where she had pseudo scrubs. And we'll talk about what happened in this case, what the general rules are, and why this case worked the way it did. Finally, the last thing we're going to look at this week is an unsuccessful attempt to invoke the innocent spouse defense for a taxpayer who had been a secretary in a corporation uh, that her husband was president of, or her ex-husband was president of, and there had been, a, eventually, ended up with a trust fund penalty for a responsible person. And she attempted to argue that she shouldn't owe the tax, you know, we're past the point of disputing the tax, but she shouldn't have to pay the tax because she argued she should qualify for innocent spouse relief. We'll discuss why that didn't work and why that can't work for a payroll tax situation, at least in the view of the tax court. So let's start with that foreclosure problem. This is the case of Howland versus Commissioner, Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2022-60. This one came down June the 13th. Now, in this case, we have a taxpayer who had both a first and second mortgage on their property and went through a foreclosure. Now, the total of the two loans plus the accrued interest on loans ended up being greater than what the house was able to be sold for at a foreclosure proceeding. The taxpayer attempted to claim an interest deduction for the amount of interest that was due on the second mortgage. Now, we're not giving a lot of details here about why this qualified, for what extent it would. They were claiming over 100000 so presumably this second mortgage still qualified as essentially acquisition debt under the federal tax rules. So it would be been used apparently as part of the acquisition of the home or as for improvements on the home. So let's just accept that was the case. Now, in this case, it kind of got interesting because the proceeds, as I said, they could pay off what was due on the first mortgage. But the question now becomes, what about the second? There were insufficient funds available to pay the second mortgage, even ignoring the accrued interest and other fees that would have been involved. There wasn't enough to even pay the principal. The IRS held 
that in this case, because there wasn't enough to pay even the principal of the loan, that there was no actual interest paid. And therefore, we should just stop at this point. That's enough facts to know. The tax court, however, didn't stop at that point. And the tax court looked at some cases and indicated that, no, they really hadn't had a holding that you could not have interest paid from proceeds of a foreclosure sale. Rather, they said one of the key issues would be, you know, they looked at one case in the past where they had held that there would be no interest. And this was the case the IRS was trying to cite to. But they pointed out there that this was an involuntary uh, program. It had not gone forward voluntarily. The house was seized, sold. The taxpayer had no control. And this case, apparently, these facts for this particular situation, appear to be more like a deed in lieu of foreclosure type of sale, or at least a foreclosure that the taxpayer and the lender had kind of agreed to, to take care of this. And so the court said, well, that's fine. You know, the taxpayer says, our agreement says the first dollars paid any time a payment's made go against interest. The tax court said, well, it's not quite that simple either. Because they said a real problem we have here is even if these payments, you know, it was a voluntary entry into the program, there was no involuntary nature of this. The problem we've got right now is it's not clear from the record whether or not you are still liable on the loan and also not clear whether or not the lender actually applied this against the interest due on the loan or what the situation was. There simply weren't enough details here. So while the tax court agreed that it's possible to get an interest deduction on a foreclosure, they also said, and even there, they're not saying it didn't happen here. They're just saying the taxpayer failed to prove what was necessary to show it happened here. And since the burden's on the taxpayer, the taxpayer lost the case based on a failure to carry the burden in the case. It's kind of a useful case to review, especially if you have a taxpayer that goes through a foreclosure or is negotiating a deed in lieu of foreclosure. You can probably get a pretty good idea from reading the case what it would have been nice. First thing is it would have been nice to document, assuming the taxpayer was still liable on the debt, which often they will be. If they're still liable on the debt, you want to document that. That'll probably get you the interest deduction if the loan's still out there but also document that the lender applied the payment to the interest, right? And with the principal remaining outstanding and that that was the nature of the agreement. Had that been shown in this case, it appears from the tax court's reasoning that the deduction for the interest would have been allowed. But as it was, the taxpayer, it wasn't just enough to say, uh, IRS, you're wrong. It's not, it's not true. It's never going to be interest income or interest expense. And it's not enough to just say, well, our agreement says they apply it first to unpaid interest. It's like, that's not enough. If the lender is taking this in full satisfaction, then they're essentially walking away from the interest. So I think that's also part of what was in play here. Next up, let's talk about the Romana decision. This is Tax Court Summary Opinion 2022-9. This case came down on June the 16th. And Romana goes into the standard problem of clothing a taxpayer is wearing in a business context. 
is that clothing a trade or business deduction? And we can talk about the reasoning why we have issues here. There's General Code Section 262A. And 262A is a very general, broad section. And it says, except as expressly provided in the chapter, no deduction shall be allowed for any personal, family, or living expenses. Now, the chapter here we're talking about here are the entire provisions that relate to income taxes under the Internal Revenue Code. So when we talk about the chapter, that's what we're talking about. Now, the other thing you'll talk about here is, well, you know, I have clothes and there is a certain dress standard I'm expected to meet. Uh, in this case, it was an employee business expense. But the same would be true about a sole, somebody who is a self-employed individual uh, some or an employer who's looking to provide clothing and reimburse on it and not want to see it end up in the payroll of the employees. So we do have this overriding issue. And you might think, well, isn't the rule just ordinary and necessary? And if it is, then it's covered. That is a rule. But here's the catch. That is a specific rule that is overcome by the general rule. Because again, 262A for personal expenses says we need to have it explicitly, right? allowed as a deduction even though it is a personal expense or a family expense or living expense. So if the clothing qualifies both as an ordinary necessary business expense and it qualifies as a personal you know, expense, it would fit in the personal category, then the personal disallowance for personal expenses is going to overcome the provision that allows a deduction for ordinary necessary. In essence, the tie in this case goes to the disallowance because that's the broader provision. The courts have developed, therefore, over the years in the cases, the basic test of is the clothing appropriate? Could it be used for personal purposes? And then also, is it actually required for an employee context by the employer as a condition of employment? You know, those are kind of the two big things. So now let's turn to the case of, this will be, in this particular case, we're looking here at uh, Ms. Romagna. And Maria Romagna was a nurse. She was employed by Kaiser Permanente. She is a nurse in a plastic surgery clinic that Kaiser Permanente runs. Kaiser has a dress code for the employees who are working in that plastic surgery clinic. And generally, she is supposed to wear comfortable but professional attire in line with her job as a nurse. So that's what she is to provide. Now, while Kaiser Permanente provides her with the scrubs that she wears in the operating room, the clothes she wears outside the OR, those she is to basically provide and they are supposed to meet these guidelines that the employer requires. To meet these guidelines, she acquired uh, what's referred to as, what they refer to as kind of pseudo scrubs. Uh, they look like scrubs, but they aren't really scrubs. 
So she would be wearing that when she was, you know, away from the OR. And she also acquired with a bunch of other Kaiser employees, white lab coats. So they each got lab coats. And the lab coats had embroidered on them Kaiser's, you know, the Kaiser logo name, and then had the individual's name embroidered on the lab coat. Now, she attempted to claim a deduction, she and her husband did, on their individual return for these expenses that Maria had incurred as her job as a nurse at the plastic surgery clinic. Now, her husband also had a bunch of expenses which the courts turned down. But we're going to concentrate on Maria here because Maria's case is more interesting. The IRS objected and said, well, you know, these pseudo scrubs are just kind of bought, you know, could be bought by anybody. You know, they, they as far as we're concerned, they're acceptable for wearing outside of the office. And we think that coat was fine, too. Uh, the ta what we have here, the tax court in this case decided, no, actually not. I mean, these, these scrubs, these pseudo scrubs are meant to look like scrubs worn by somebody in a medical practice. And yeah, every so often you might see somebody walking around outside the practice in scrubs or pseudo scrubs, uh, you know, going picking up lunch or something. But I don't normally see people in contexts that aren't somehow related to their work wearing that kind of an outfit. Similarly, the lab coat, those of us who are old timers and kind of remember the old rule we used to be given about, you know, the gas station attendant mechanic who had his name embroidered on overalls, that that was considered to be that embroidered name was considered to make it inappropriate for business work. Now, the court came to the same conclusion here, that essentially the lab coat, the white lab coat also really outside the context of the medical clinic wasn't something that people were going to wear. Now, let's remember a couple of facts here. In the general area of clothing, and as I said, I know that employee business expenses are not currently deductible. I know that we're not going to be able to get that until 2026, maybe, if they don't extend it. And I suspect they will extend this one, so I expect they're gone for good. But the same basic rule applies if we're talking about self-employed individuals, if we're talking about an employer looking to provide clothing for the staff to wear, right? We have to meet the same criteria. You know, an employer can't just buy somebody a full wardrobe, uh, you know, general purpose wardrobe, and then have that not be considered part of their compensation. Remember, the general rule is we have to consider it part. So effectively, two things to remember about this. The mere fact that a taxpayer may never intend to wear it in public isn't relevant here. I mean, I know a lot of people who are in professional offices and maybe, you know, they're required to show up in a, you know, in a suit with a tie at the office on uh, except for casual Fridays type things. So they're always required to be at the office in a suit with a tie. Now, they may never, ever, ever, ever wear a tie outside of that context. They may never wear the suit 
outside of that context. Or I guess they, they'll, they'll take the black suit out for a funeral. But that, that's about it, right? They, they never wear it in general context. It doesn't really matter. Even though the suit may be something that they simply do not plan to wear outside of the professional context, as long as it could reasonably be used outside that context, you're going to lose the deduction. And the flip side of it is, it's not necessarily enough for the IRS to say, well, it could be worn outside the business context, like, you know, the pseudo scrubs. They could be worn anywhere. You're not going to be picked up and thrown in jail because you're out in public wearing those. But realistically, they simply are only worn in a work context. And so because of that, they have to show there really is personal use going there. So understand what you're looking for. If you're looking for a clothing issue for a self-employed person, if you're setting up an employee expense reimbursement program about what you could do in this area and understand the distinction. The real test is going to fundamentally come down to, you know, could it reasonably be used as personal clothing and fulfill that, fulfill that not, not just in a pinch, but could it reasonably be seen outside a business context as clothing someone would wear? If that answer is yes, then you're probably going to lose it as a deduction. But if the clothing really is something that even though it could be worn outside that context, really is never done that way, and you're probably going to be okay in that area. Finally, this week, let's take a look at the case of Chavez versus Commissioner. This is a public tax court decision, 158 DC number 8. And this one came down on June the 15th of 2022. Now, first thing we're going to mention here, it is a published decision. As a published decision, that means this is deciding a matter of law that the tax court has not actually ruled on before. This is meant to be precedential. So this was a decision reviewed by the other judges in the tax court and approved for publication. As such, it means regardless of where you do this, every time you bring this up for the tax court, if you have the facts in question here, you're always going to get the result from the tax court. And it deals with section 6015F of the Internal Revenue Code. And that is going to be your equitable relief for a innocent spouse claim. So here we have a taxpayer. She, her, she and her ex-husband, when they were married, he was running the corporation as president. She was the corporate secretary, okay? Listed as such formally with the state, with any place needs to be done. She's the corporate secretary, right? Well, as sometimes happens, this company managed to not pay its payroll taxes. Well, this turns out to be a bit of a problem because generally, as you're aware, under 66672 of the Internal Revenue Code, if an employer fails to pay payroll taxes, fails to pay over what's what we call the trust fund taxes, those are taxes withheld from employees' wages. So that generally means the, the federal withholding tax and the employee share of FICA and Medicare. If those funds are not transmitted to the IRS and any other creditors are paid, 
at the time there is an outstanding balance to the IRS. Any party who allowed those other creditors to be paid, who could have directed the IRS to be paid before the other creditors, any of those people will be deemed to be a responsible person. And as a responsible person under 6672, they effectively are on the hook for the trust fund taxes if they are not paid by the employer. So there is a positive duty. And you'll say, well, that, that's okay. We're incorporated. We're an LLC. It doesn't matter. This comes outside the corporation or LLC. You might say, well, I don't own any stock in it. I'm, I'm not, not a partner, right? I don't have any LLC member interest. Again, irrelevant. You don't have to have a member interest. You don't have to have any ownership interest. You don't need equity to be a responsible person. You just need to be somebody who was in a position to see the IRS got paid and either recklessly ignored your duty or, you know, essentially, uh, you know, just allowed it to happen. You didn't step in front. Now, this case is somewhat of a case of just not taking action, which I think is part of the big problems here. She did get the letter in the mail addressed to her, specifically telling her that the IRS was moving to assess the trust fund penalty against her, also against her husband, but against her because as corporate secretary, a corporate officer, the IRS was finding she was in a position to have had the authority under the law to have assured that the IRS had gotten paid and she failed to exercise that authority. Now, you might say sometimes is, well, I don't know. The catch is, in some cases, a service could show that you just should have known. You know, it's one of those things where it was kind of your duty. You can't be willfully blind to it. But even if you were legitimately somebody unaware of what was happening and you weren't shirking your duties by being unaware, you still have a problem once you become aware because once you're aware payroll taxes haven't been paid and you're in a position to assure they keep getting paid, you pretty much now have to check it every time because you have been put on warning that the company's systems failed to get the payroll taxes paid for whatever reason, usually because we didn't have money and we're trying to keep the doors open and the IRS doesn't show up right away to shut you down if you don't pay these taxes. So a lot of businesses fall into the trap of just putting off paying the payroll tax deposits and then find themselves in this deep hole. So she got that notice. She's a responsible party. Now, at this point, she could have protested. She could have fought. She could have asked for an appeal. She could have said, look, I'm a secretary in name only, corporate secretary in name only. You know, let's say, you know, the state of whatever demands there be at least two corporate officers. And so my husband's company, you know, he was the president. He needed another officer. He just put my name down. But he ran everything. He did all the payroll tax reports. I never signed a payroll tax report. I never saw them, reviewed them. I didn't see the bank accounts, etc., etc. Okay, she could have done that. It is possible she could have persuaded the IRS or the courts that she was not truly a responsible party. But the problem is she did none of that in this case. She failed to appeal the ruling. 
Uh, she just let it go forward. Now, a few years go by after that. Suddenly, he pays some of the payroll taxes. He pays some of it. Uh, less than half of the total balance due, but he paid something. So the IRS is now coming to collect the rest, and now they're coming after her. Okay, She now is being chased down for what she feels like is her ex-husband's liability. And a lot of people may think that way. I'm, You know, you can even have a divorce decree that says it's his responsibility. That's fine, but the IRS wasn't a party of that decree. And that's going to turn out to be a problem. Now, she tries to argue, among other things. She tried a couple of arguments. But one of the key things she did was she filed the form to claim she should qualify for relief as an innocent spouse. Now, the innocent spouse rules are found in Section 6015 of the Code. Right? She argued that she should be an innocent spouse. Now, the general innocent spouse rule at 6015A uh, tells us that an individual who's made a joint return can seek relief under the procedures, you know, in here. And, you know, we have these issues under either B or C, an individual that filed a joint return. It also talks about in the title of the section that we're dealing here with the issue of, you know, relief from joint and several liability on a joint return. Obviously, there is no joint 941, that is the tax return in question, right, where the liability arose from. And in fact, the only joint return we've got is a joint income tax return. So the tax court starts initially and says, well, A, which rules 6015B and C, those only apply to a joint income tax return this liability is not from a joint income tax return. Therefore, sorry, you don't qualify for relief here. However, there is another provision, 6015F. And what 6015F tells us is that, in essence, it says, under procedures prescribed by the secretary, if taking into account all the facts and circumstances is inequitable to hold the individual liable for any unpaid tax or any deficiency or any portion of either, and relief is not available under B or C, then the secretary may relieve such individual of such liability. This is where we get into the new item being decided by the tax court. Because notice that 6015F never said joint income tax return. Okay, and you could read that to say, arguably, well, she can't get relief under B or C because they're income tax provisions, so she should be able to argue under F for relief from the payroll tax rules. Okay. Now, the tax court had never really addressed this issue, so now they move to address it. And the problem they have is, the IRS had already dealt with this. This section is, remember, it's in a provision labeled, you know, that talks specifically about joint income tax liabilities. That's what 6015 is titled. The rest of the section continually talks about income tax items. Okay, Income tax liabilities, relief from the joint income tax liability. And even the concept of an innocent spouse uh, supposes there is some sort of joint liability here. 
that there was this issue that related to the marriage and you're stuck with it for this reason. Uh, the tax court held, very simply, that this rule does not apply to any payroll tax matters. They said, F, even though we don't explicitly see the term income tax or joint return in F, few things are, first thing is, it doesn't absolutely you know, foreclose the possibility that it's only talking about income taxes. In context, it might be talking only about the income taxes, because that's what the whole rest of the section talks about, is the joint income tax return. So, it's not clear. It's ambiguous. Uh, the IRS, in regulations, has specifically limited F to income taxes. Okay? Well, that's the IRS exercising their ability to clarify ambiguous code provisions. And more importantly, when Congress passed this provision of the law, the committee report specifically discussed that this was to provide relief from joint income tax liabilities in situations where B and C weren't available and it was inequitable to hold the spouse liable for that joint income tax liability. So, Effectively, the court said, based on all of that, based on the regs, based on the congressional record, you know, the congressional reports, it appears that the whole point of this was to limit it to income taxes. We find that that is not a, you know, that it's not an unreasonable reading of this provision. And we also find that this provision itself does not, it does not essentially only leave the option of allowing a waiver for every type of tax possible. In fact, if you start to think about that, it would be interesting to try to figure out, well, what kind of tenuous relationship to the marriage do you have to have to get out of some specific type of tax under this particular structure? And that could be a lot more interesting. So fundamentally, the tax court has now said, yeah, you can't get out of it. Don't forget, she was found to be a responsible party. And her attempt to argue innocent spouse was that, well, she never had anything to do with the payroll tax reports. She never signed one. You know, he took care of the business. And the problem is, those are defenses really that should have been raised back when she had, you know, back when she had the right to appeal the underlying liability. This went through a collection due process hearing. They're reviewing that now for an abuse of discretion. As the tax court said, you already had your chance to litigate the reality of the liability. And that's probably where she should have done it. And in her facts, there's a reasonable chance she would have prevailed. But now she's stuck with too late. Now, there are some ways you could try to work it, but she specifically turned down other collection alternatives, which would have included going for an offer and compromise. You can do an OIC based on doubt as to liability. But, remember, an OIC is going to keep the statute open. She was also asking to go into currently not collectible status. My guess is she's probably going to want to try to ride out the 10-year statute. That's what they're looking to do. Because uh, she was denied, you know, she basically, they wouldn't put her in currently not collectible. She didn't ask for an offer in compromise to make it permanently non-collectible. You know, so she didn't go that route. There was some... You know, and obviously I think there was some strategizing with her, her counsel. Remember, the risk of an OIC is the statute stays open while pending plus additional time 
So if you're going to try to write out the statute, if you think that's where you're going to have to go, or you think there's a reasonable chance you'll be going there, then an OIC may work against you and just give the IRS more time at the end of the statute. So in any event, she loses this case. Well, this has been the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 20th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Capital Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I will be monitoring this week uh, the various Connect sites I look at, Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington. Look also if anything goes into Idaho's discussion groups. We talk some there. You know, Some of these groups are far more active than others, uh, and you, know, you can get involved as you wish. I also have an email, edzollers at currentfelltaxdevelopments.com if you want to email me, ask me a quick question about something. Otherwise, we will see you next week. See how things are going. See what's happening. See if we have something new to talk about. Hopefully we will here in the area of current federal tax developments.